You are listening to the Sam Gash Podcast. Conversations with peak performing individuals from the adventure, sporting, entrepreneurial arts and business arena. Now what ties these conversations together is that they are being held with individuals who all dare to go into the unknown. You know, this bravery inevitably means that they have stumbled, yet they have innovated, collaborated and contributed. I hope you enjoy these conversations. Where uh, my mentality sits now is that collaboration is king and it must remain king. Ego will isolate and spirit will collaborate. Ego will kind of not get get you where you want to go in terms of film and TV and performance. This podcast is with the incredible Daniel McPherson, you know, one of Australia's most highly regarded leading actors. You know, many of you will know um, Dan from his early stints on Neighbours, uh, something that won him a Logie Award for Most Popular New Talent. Uh, he's also been nominated for Most Popular Actor, but also not one to ever be settled with where he is. Dan always pushes the boundaries of where his talents can take him, but also the experiences that he can have. He has hit pretty much most um, forums of, you know, the arts. He's been in theatre productions, um, namely when he was in the UK. He's gone on to be in films, uh, leading male roles in the US. He's been a host on Australian television programs such as X Factor uh, and Dancing with the Stars. Excitingly, Dan is a first-time father. Um, He welcomed his baby boy son into the world five months ago with his wife, Zoe, and I feel really privileged that, you know, he shares to me some of his insights um, and experiences um, becoming a father at the age of 40, uh, the deepening relationship with his father, and also what it's like to be a father, uh, you know, entering that baby bubble whilst now also being uh, at home through COVID-19. This is a really special conversation and uh, I have immense gratitude for the time that I got to spend with Dan. He's a deep thinker, he's highly reflective and I think there are a lot of nuggets and I hope you enjoy it. All right, Dan, welcome to Sam Gash Podcast. I'm super stoked to have a conversation with you. Um, my mum is also really stoked that I'm having a conversation <laughs> with you. So good. Hi, mum. Oh, she'll yeah, love it. Maybe, send it, send maybe it she'll best. actually, maybe she'll actually listen to one of the conversations oh, now. There you go. Good. Look, happy, happy to help the family relationships. Thanks for having <laughs> me. Really, really nice to sit down and chat. Actually, I've obviously been a big, a big, uh, a big fan for a long time. So, so nice to nice to sit down and, and have a chat. Yeah, it's weird because we have never met in person. But oh. I would say over the last five years, like your name has been dropped to me. Some, you know, Katmandu once reached out and we're like, oh, we're really keen on having you and Dan do coast to coast. And then, you know, I got in touch with you. And yeah. I, so I feel like we, you know, got mutual friends and Rich Roll. And so yeah. it's and that, and Sarah, you know, and, and Nick as well. So it, it's kind of cool to. I guess at least digitally be in the that's, same space. That's right. That's right. I mean, look, it was always going to happen. It was always it going was. to happen and uh, and the right time is the right time and here we are. The funny thing is I think even, I mean, I not think, I know, this year I even reached out to you and I said, I've got this idea of this like endurance project. I yeah. actually didn't know what was going on in your life at the time, which yeah. probably would have made this project impossible, but it yeah. certainly would have made it impossible given the fact that everything that we planned for this year is now at a halt with COVID-19. So yeah. can you give me like some understanding of, I do want to, like where were you 
when Australia went into lockdown? Where are you now? And like, how's life going for you guys? Uh, well, I am in Sydney, Australia, and uh, and I I've been working overseas a lot, particularly the last five years. Um, uh, the show I was doing Strike Back changed locations every year, so. Um, Last year, I was in Croatia for most of the year. The year before that, I was in uh, Malaysia, all around Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong. Uh, the year before that, I was in uh, Budapest, Jordan, and Croatia. Um, and just as sort of life does, uh, right as I was finishing Strike Back, the final ever season, the final ever episode, and about to head home to Los Angeles, which has been home for, for a while now, um, I got a job shooting in Ireland, um, which I kind of couldn't turn down. So I was in Ireland earlier this year starting a new project. Um, I came home uh, for a week or two just to see my family. And um, as I was about to head back, uh, the world the world went on pause. So um, it's it's been an absolute blessing. So I'm, I'm in Sydney. I'm with Zoe. Uh, I'm with our, with our beautiful new son, uh, Austin, who's, who's five months. And... For for me, um, this time has been a real blessing to just press stop and be completely present where I am, um, to to enjoy being around um, not only my own family but but you know spend time with my father and and my sister and and, and my mum and her partner and just to be back in Australia and and not be looking when the next flight is to the next job to the next place so um uh, i'm taking a, i'm taking a, a a kind of pause like everybody and it's funny just uh when did i get back i got back on the 20th of february um just this week it's like every cell in my body has kind of been going okay you've had uh three months off you where are you, you know where, where are we going where are you Whereas the next, like my body is kind of so conditioned to changing cities, you know, every couple of months that uh, I've had this bizarre kind of cellular uh, reaction to going, hey, you've been in one place for a long time. Uh, should we get moving? And so it's nice to kind of fight that a little bit. Yeah, man, you, you do have a, I mean, you have a bit of a transient lifestyle. I've, you know, I've read before that you live your life out of a suitcase, even when you are in the same place for a couple of weeks, mm. you know, what has it felt like to adapt to being in the one place? Like what, what's that process been like for you? Because, I mean, some people would say it's very challenging to change the course of what they're used to. Yeah, I, um, it, I was sort of always a, a big proponent of, 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 of uh, being really, I was always proud of myself on being really adaptable. Um, and then as you sort of get older and I, and I realized, I mean, I turned 40, uh, on Anzac day, just gone. So on the 25th. So, uh, I realized that I've been out of a suitcase since I was 17. Um, and, and that's, but I always crave home, whatever home is, you know, and, and, um, and home, uh, home has been a little bit up in the air. We, we, we packed up our, our place in Los Angeles and put that in storage 12 months ago. Uh, when, when Zoe got a job in home and away. So it sort of didn't make sense for us to have a home in LA while I was in Croatia and Zoe was in Sydney and, mm. and all that sort of stuff. So um, it's good. It, it, you know, 
I um, it's easy to it's easy for life to get so quick, uh, and and I'll, I'll preface this by saying I'm an ambitious bastard. I hate sitting still. I really try and take on everything, bite off more than you can chew, chew like hell, go like hell, do it. Come on, just just do it, you know. And but you need to balance that out with with the opposite of that. And if if the if the sort of spectrum is too heavy on one end, then I think life or your health is often a good one that'll go, hey, guess what? You need to sit still. You've you know. And, and your body will go, hey, you're, you're going to tear your hamstring or, or I'm going to make you a little bit sick for a while and I'm going to slow you down that way. Um, whereas this one has kind of been, uh, you know, imposed upon us in a certain way. And and I'm, I'm greeting that with with great acceptance, with gratitude, actually. You go, fucking thank you. Like, I, you know, I needed I needed this break. And uh, and it's 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 been an absolute blessing and a gift. Yeah, I think it's... I mean, you've had a 22, I think I'm approximately right, 22-year career in the arts and yeah. you have re- your career spanned many different mediums and it's, yeah. it's impressive. You've done like soapies and multiple yeah. series and hosted yeah. TV shows, movies and, I mean, US, Australia, New Zealand, Jordan, Croatia, Malaysia and you said a bunch of other countries yeah. just before and you've, you've obviously started to do that new shoot in, in Ireland as well. But it doesn't look like you've had much pause and break between all that and has there been a breaking point because there's been no pause or has it actually worked really well for you um it it's it depends on sort of what lens you look at it with um you know is that i kind of look at balance on a on a big kind of macro level i I kind of I strive for balance, but a lot of people might do that in their day-to-day lives or, or in their day-to-day decisions or, you know, from the time they're awake to the time they go to sleep, look at the balance that way. I kind of end up looking at balance on a macro scale of going, I work my ass off for six months and I take six months off or I work my ass off for a year and I might take an easy year. And that's, um, that's something that's just sort of developed over time and that's something I'm addressing at the moment, you know, of going, well, I've worked my ass off for three years when I got to LA and I didn't get a job Mm. and then finally I've broken through and the last three four five years have had this great momentum um this pause this time finishing finishing a three series as a lead in my first American uh, big American show like Strike Back um turning 40 uh, dis- discovering fatherhood, just stepping into fatherhood for the first time. It's kind of like a big kind of um, bit of a life shift happening for me right now. And and so to have this time to to just sort of process that it has been really good. But I bought a house on the Sunshine Coast 10 years ago and that was um, that was my idea of going, well, that's my – point zero that's where whenever whenever whatever happens whenever i finish something i go back there and it's at the time it had no internet it had very poor phone reception it was across the road from the beach at sunshine beach it had like you know i could i could surf i could run up the beach every morning i could meditate i could get in the ocean three times a day i could ride my bike run through the national park i, I could do whatever i needed to do to bring the needle back to zero um where i've probably 
failed. It's just not getting back there enough. So, so when, um, when we went into lockdown in Australia, we were, we were very much trying to, to get home to, to Queensland, but obviously the borders closed and the, the, um, the lockdown went into effect and, and we stayed in Sydney. Um, obeying the law, uh, but <laughs> but very much. Uh, I, I thought I thought you were a rule breaker, Dan. <laughs> oh, very much would have uh, would have liked to have been up there. So as soon as that um, as soon as those sort of uh, restrictions get lifted, I'll definitely get up there for a little bit more of a recharge and and uh, and that's kind of my happy place where where I can really just 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 chill out and and like I say, bring the bring the ship back to balance, bring the needle back to zero. And, um, you know, and my sporting life has always provided me great lessons um, that I can apply to the, the rest of my life and to my career and to, you know, to marriage and fatherhood and all that sort of stuff. But um, I used to get coached by Pat Carroll when I was running many yeah. years ago. And really? Yeah, just for a little bit, just for a little while. And, um you know, his mantra after a race was recover first, then move forward. And I was, you yeah. know, it was like I'd race and I'd do, I was running better than I'd ever run. And I'm not a runner, man. I was like, <laughs> I'm not a, like I've got to work hard to run, you know, in a, in a triathlon, like I was, I'd get slower as the race went on, you know, but, but I really, you know, worked on my, my weaknesses and, but that kind of recover first, then move forward has always been a, a valuable lesson. And when I ignore that and I ignore it more than I should, is when it comes back to bite you in the ass, you know. I think there's, you know, I think you're similar to me. Like we are always drawn to the next thing, but something I have tried to incorporate and I think what sustained me in my career of endurance sports for as long as I have is I do, I give everything. Like I'm like 180% into something. Sometimes yeah. I have tunnel vision and I, I won't deny that there is sacrifice to other elements of my life and there's been fallout because of that yeah but then when I step out of it um I try and let the pendulum swing in the opposite direction exactly I think I think we're saying that I think we're saying the same same thing in different language really you know yeah. knowing that that you've got you've got a certain amount of energy you've got a certain amount of hours in the day calories to burn a certain amount of mental focus that you can apply to one single thing and and if you can you know you'll end up taking a bit of that out of your yeah. work, out of your certain relationships, out of certain people, certain activities. And the more you can focus that on a singular thing, well, guess what? You, you get a result from that that you, yeah. you, you don't get when you allocate it the, the 10% of your time that you've normally been given it, giving it. But, but um, and that's, that's a, that's, that can be a double-edged sword. You know, that can be a dangerous way to live. It, I think I think it really can be, and um, I, and I think as a father, you're you're going to probably feel it more and more now because you know Austin couldn't have been that old when you decided to go to Ireland, right? Well, I mean, Austin wasn't even born when I decided to go to Ireland. You know, okay. and that was that was even a harder that was even a harder conversation to have. You know, and and that was a decision, sort of, you know, almost. It, and this is a this is sort of a tri tricky topic because I'm I'm on hiatus on a on a job that has not yet been announced and and it's yep. and it's a big it's a it's a big job it's a massive job for a massive company um, and I'm and I'm alongside an incredible cast um, and that job is now on hiatus and and I hope it goes back but at the time when I was I got that job while I was still doing strike back. 
And thankfully, I have a very understanding wife. When I rang up and said, hey, I think I might have got this job, having told her that I was going to take at least three months off to come home and recover from, from seven months away and, you know, be there as a husband and as a, and as a new father, um, having absolutely no idea what that was going to take. And, and, um, but it was one of those jobs where, well, it's not, um, it's not normal, but we can make it work, you know, and, and thankfully I have, uh, someone in my life that understands the way I think and, um, and, and is open to that and, and, and it's all working out it's all working out, you know, and that's the, that's the best thing. And, and, um, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's com- some for some people it's completely incomprehensible you know to go oh, how 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 do you do that how do you work in ireland and live in sydney and have half your stuff in los angeles and you know but it's like well it's the life man yeah, it's your normal and you guys have created yeah. the way in which you choose to work and i think and and live with your family and i yeah. i think the problem with that is you know, I think you're, you might be, again, similar like me. We often go, well, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Like this is the next level of where I wanted to go to. But the problem is when does that stop? I mean, yeah, exactly I, right. I feel like you're always going to be getting like this next incredible opportunity. And yeah. I guess what's considering now you've been home, you've been like completely immersed into family life. Yeah. Like, how does that feel to be the incredibly present father where there's like stability of at least geographical location? Oh look! I, look, I think um, it doesn't matter what you believe in, whether you believe in God or the universe or Mother Nature or, or fate or karma or whatever. The, the life puts you where you're supposed to be, and yeah. life went, "Hey man, you, you're gonna you're gonna be right there, locked inside an apartment, <laughs> you know, for X amount of months with your son and your wife, <laughs> you know, and." Thank you. I mean, what a what a gift. What a gift. I'm actually so I'm having gone through that journey like three years ago or two years ago. I, I'm so happy that you could experience that family bubble, like that intensive baby bubble where like really nothing pierces it. I mean, outside the doors there can be like a, a global pandemic, there can be all this stuff, but you've got like this, you know, night and day merge into one. You're, you're, what you do for each other determines how you feel the next moment. Emotions are high. Oh, I'm, I'm happy you get to be in that. Oh, totally, you know, and and – Looking back now, I mean, you can't make decisions. You can't make decisions about what life is going to look like once you're a parent when you're not a parent. Yeah, 100%. Um, there's, things, there's things in our DNA, in our cells, that, that we don't even know about that get awakened once you're looking at a little version of yourself staring back at you going, love me, hug me, feed me, <laughs> hold me. Oh, well, yeah. all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the next job doesn't really matter. Yeah. What is, what is fatherhood teaching you? Um, not just to be present. It really is, you know. And, and you know, it's, it's actually really, um, even, even before he was born in, in those first couple of months, um, you know, the first, you know, I, I left before he was nine weeks old. I had to go back to Ireland for a couple of weeks. Um it really has shed light on my relationship with my father and mm. my father and I are now closer than I think we've ever been. And, and I understand 
his love for me and the way he uh, shows and has showed that throughout my life a lot more. Um, and that's, that's been, um, that's been really lovely. Yeah. I, I remember when I had Harry and it actually transformed my relationship with my mother and I've had this book and memoirs that I've been writing for like, it feels like 20 years, but it's been probably five years. And I had a couple of chapters where I spoke about like what it was like to be young Sam and I spoke about my relationship with my mother and I was hypercritical and I am so grateful, again, things happen for a reason, that I never published that version of the book. Because oh, the way, wow. Yeah, the way I feel about my mum now with the lens of me being a mother is utterly different. Yeah. And I love that, like, level of compassion and kindness and understanding that we get yeah. when we then enter the shoes of someone else. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's, it really, it, it took me a long time and, I'm, you know, it took me to till I was nearly 40 to, to become a, a parent and and I wouldn't change that but I certainly understand now you know a lot of my friends had kids in their late 20s or, or when they were 30 and, and they're you know a good five or ten years ahead of me in their in their parenting skills I mean there's people like my age you know and then I've got older, obviously older friends have got, got teenagers and whatnot but um they've obviously been looking at me going hey man you've just been living around the world you know <laughs> you know, Los Angeles, you know, Chicago, Europe, whatever. Uh, and, you know, and, and my dad was like, I think my, my dad said two things. He's like, you are not going to know what hit you. you. I was like, <laughs> oh, maybe maybe next year we should go back to Croatia and have a holiday. But he's like, you just have got no idea what's coming your way, pal. <laughs> you reckon you're going to keep me out of it? You think you're going to be able to plan all this stuff? Good luck. You know? Yeah. And uh, and then, but he did say to my sister, and that was really nice. He said, "I think I think fatherhood is going to bring out the best version of, of Dan." And um and that's you know he didn't say it to me, but uh, he, did, <laughs> he did say it to my sister, and, and it's nice to know that uh, that he feels that way. So yeah, yeah, I think that's cool. And like you know, with parenthood, doesn't I don't think it has to stop the ambition and the desire to live out dreams outside of being a father or you know a mother. Um, and I certainly, you know, I went back to work six weeks after having Harry and I had Harry on the road with me as a corporate speaker. And But I will say I created some plans even when I was pregnant of like, I'm going to run across the Simpson Desert and I'm going to break the record and I'm going to carry Harry on tow. And, <laughs> and then I got to like four months after having Harry, I'm like, oh, my God, I don't want to run. Like, <laughs> Right? Well, I think I think that's the, that's been the lesson that I've learnt just in both in both parenthood and in the, in the COVID lockdown of going, you, just, you, you know, the universe laughs at your plans. You yeah. Know, you can plan all you want, but 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 you know, for, for multiple reasons, it's it's completely futile. It's more futile than it usually is, you know. And uh, you know, I, I like to have a sort of a general roadmap, and uh, but then you can you never know which which of the roads you're going to take. But if you've got a general direction, I think it's pretty important. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't agree more and um, I'm happy we got to touch in that kind of stuff because I think, you know, fatherhood does change people, you know, having children later in life also changes how you feel about the life that you had prior to becoming a father as well. Yeah. But your journey through time is, I think it's really fascinating because I almost think of you as like the accidental but hardest working actor and almost the accidental athlete but the hardest working athlete when you choose <laughs> to be an athlete yeah. and because you didn't have like aspirations to be an actor when you were a kid, right? 
No, I didn't. I didn't. I was um, throughout sort of high school. I was I was discovering triathlon during high school. So I, I was I did my first triathlon in nineteen ninety one um, in Sydney. My rugby coach. So my dad's a Kiwi. He was a big big rugby fan um, and big rugby sized dude. You know, hundred kilos and, and and big big Kiwi. Um, so again, not really the best genetics for for being a good runner and. <laughs> And I started playing rugby and then my rugby coach put on the local triathlon series in Cronulla. So then my dad started training for that and I started training for that. They had a kid series in the afternoon the day before the, the Sunday morning race. And, um, and so by about 13 or 14 in high school, uh, I was getting pretty good at, at triathlons as a, as a junior and I was going to go off to um, New South Wales Institute of Sport for like a talented athlete identification mm. program. And, and suddenly my life... Um, was more outside of school than it was in school. And I went, I went to a pretty good school. I was at Sydney Boys High, um, which was a pretty well-rounded academic and sporting school. And then as it kind of went on, I, I quit rugby and I, and, I, and I was riding my bike and training with my buddies. And, but never in there did I do drama or never in there did I think about anything um, in terms of the arts or, or anything like that. And probably the biggest career or the biggest personal shift I had to make was in the first sort of 10 years after high school of trying to work out that my entire life had been measurable. Effort effort was measurable. You go, I'm going to devote six months to a race. The harder I work, X, which is the time that race takes, will become lower. So I've got a finite unit of measurement. I've got a finite number to show my result, you know, and how hard I worked. And it signifies what that six months, 12 months, you know, commitment was. But you, you didn't get that in acting or you didn't get that in the arts. And I struggled with that for a really long time, trying to reconcile whether I was any good or whether it was any good or whether my art was any good or, or, or yeah, for a long time, I really craved the, unit of measurement that I was getting as a, as a teenager and as a, as an athlete. Yeah. That's super interesting. Do you think that's led you to um, move away from like the need for affirmation or has affirmation become a part of that unit of measurement? Um, what I had to do was I had to kind of skirt around and try and come at it about 15 different ways. So I tried doing it as a soap actor or I tried doing it as a live TV host or I tried doing it as a theater actor or I tried doing it as like a indie film guy. And it wasn't until I really learned to apply the 110% athletes commitment and discipline to acting that then I was able to get the level of personal satisfaction Mm -hmm. out of my performance in acting. And subsequently, when I was able to put in that Iron Man amount of effort into creating a character and shooting a movie, the jobs and the reviews and the critics and the directors suddenly all were like, great, he's amazing. And so I don't know if it was the the positive reinforcement of the words of those who are watching it or those I was working with as much as it was off. I cracked it. 
it took me 15 years, but I finally worked out how to apply the skill set I'd learned as a teenager and a 20-year-old athlete to the career that I'd chosen. And what that meant was I had to go and learn all the tools of the craft to then be able to kind of get in and do it at the level I wanted to do it that would satisfy me. Does that make sense? It makes actually great sense. I find that fascinating because it's almost like having the – Understanding what the commitment takes in another entirely different realm yeah. allowed you to, well, over 15 years, work out what it internally feels like when you are fully in something and you're giving it everything. Exactly right. Exactly right. And it was like, well, I, and I guess for for the first 10 or 15 years of my career, I knew that it wasn't, I, I just knew I, I wasn't giving it everything because I, the, the only thing I'd known was to train twice or three times a day, you know, ride 180K on a Saturday morning, get off and run 10K off the bike until you're absolutely smashed, come home, fall asleep, get up and go and swim 4K and do it all again tomorrow. And and I was like, well, acting can't just be driving into Channel 7 and learning some words and saying them and coming home. Like that can't be, that can't be it, you know. And it wasn't until I learned and I trained with some a series of really great acting coaches in the U S and around the world and really learnt the tools. It was like having all these words to say, but not having the language with which to say them. Yeah. And it was, so I had to go and learn the new language and then finally I could, you know, express my entire story. If that makes, anyway, that's enough. That's a good analogy, it, but yeah. I mean, it's like unlocking the code and I mean, exactly. you've, again, you've been in the industry and I'm sure the code is different for everybody, like what it takes to unlock your potential uh, and your commitment. But what do you think are some of the key features, at least that you've observed, of people who not just stay and endure um, the arts industry but also become successful? Like what, are there some certain things, like if someone wants to be like this budding actor, like what could you say to them that is some defining features that you've observed over time? Um, without doubt, there's a resilience um, that particularly, you know, overseas, the, the Americans go, oh, my God, all, all you Aussies, you're all, you're all so hardworking, you're all so fit and you're all so you know, versatile and you're all so prepared and, you know, you're all so positive. And it's like, well, I don't know if that's nah. true. <laughs> you know, it's just I, I think maybe there's just a, a small selection of people that have gone to LA and really stuck it out. And it's a certain type of person that lands there and is able to endure what America throws at you and, and say, actually, I still want to do this and I'm still going to put my head down and be able to do it. And I know a lot of wonderful performers who've got to the States and done pilot season or done, you know, over some time over there and gone, guess what? This isn't for me. I'm just not that type of person because there's a competitiveness to the states, there's a there's a hunger, there's a there's a, a, a certainly a, 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 a chew you up, spit you out business element to, to working in America. Um, but definitely resilience will treat you will be your friend. Um, if you take everything personally, if you take every rejection personally, that shit they didn't choose me because I'm not good enough, or I'm not tall enough, or I'm not muscly enough or I'm not short enough or it's bullshit. It's, it's not true. You know, there's, there's a thousand reasons that go into, um, 
to getting you a job and not getting you a job. Um, the most successful people and the people that I've admired that I've learned the most from don't wait for somebody to give them a job to, to be working, i.e. Mm. the most successful people I know work harder when they're not on a job than when they are. And so, for example, a time like this now where where the world is in you know, global pause, um, I know a lot of people, myself included, are working their absolute backsides off on writing stuff, on new TV ideas, on film ideas, on, you know, when some I see people saying, oh, oh I'm so bored, I'm so bored at this time. Yeah. I, I want to fucking slap them, Sam. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Sam's mum. I'm sorry I said the F word. No. Um, <laughs> but, but if it just it infuriates me. Uh, I, I think there's a work ethic that is a self-discipline in that you're going, you know, use your own time. Don't wait for someone else to to tell you what to do and when to do it. You've got to get off your ass and do it yourself. Um, and, I, and I touched on this with, um, you would have heard with, with Bram on the Warrior You podcast, but the, the mantra that's kind of really just served me well and I just I learnt that from trial and error of, of being in the US is like there are so many things that are out of your control. There are so many elements out of your control when getting a job anywhere in the world, but particularly the US, that that you have no excuse to not master the ones that are in your control. Yes. If you're waiting for your agent to get you an audition before you start working on your American accent, I, I want to slap you as well. You know, yep. if you're, you know, if you're going, oh, it'll be fine once I get on set, I'll start working out once I get the job or whatever. No, you, you've got to be primed and ready to the utmost of your ability so that when that phone call comes, you're ready to go. Hey, I'm a guy. I'm in shape, prepped. I know what's going on. My accent's great. I'm clear-headed. Um, I've watched all the similar shows that are uh, similar to the tone of the project that I'm auditioning for. Um, I've researched every one of the creators. I know what they've done. I can have a conversation with the producers about their previous work. It's just you've got to control what's what you're able to control and you have no excuse not to if you want to succeed. So when you went to the US, did you have an understanding of what type of our, um, character type you fitted into or were you doing things to position yourself um, in a certain character type that you enjoy playing? Uh, no, I wasn't. And and so everything I've just spoken so passionately about, uh, and guess whose coffee just kicked in? Um, <laughs> <laughs> <Not> too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, everything I, I just spoke about was was I learned myself because I went over there and I was doing Dancing with the Stars. So I was coming back three months a year, earning enough money to live and not have to work in America, live in a great house, buy a nice car, live in Hollywood, go to auditions. But I was – I still ride my bike in Malibu. I was going to – I was driving down to, to Santa Monica to go swim training every day. I was like an audition had – an, aud an audition had come through and I'd be up in Malibu on my bike. I wouldn't even look at the script. And it was like, dude, you, what are you doing, man? And, and it took me a couple of years to realize that. So the realization for me came about three years in where doing it that way and still focusing on getting fit. And during that time, I qualified for two 70.3 world championships. I won the 
amateur division of this, uh, the Los Angeles triathlon. I mean, to say that I wasn't focusing on acting would be an understatement. <laughs> you know, it was like, if, if you're fit enough to race at that level, you're not, you're not doing the work you know, in your career, you know, simple as that. And you know what that balance is like. Do, do you think that's because the, the process of what it takes to be good in an Ironman or a triathlon, you are more clear on? So you could put yourself into that as opposed to go back to the complete beginning, the exploratory phase of actually unlocking what it takes to be good in Hollywood. Yeah, I guess I just wasn't ready. I guess I, and I didn't, and maybe I didn't even know that I wasn't ready. Because everything had come so easily for me in the in the ten or fifteen years prior to that, that I thought I just had to turn up and look healthy and smile. And guess what? You walk into a room and there's twenty five other guys that look exactly like you, yeah. but they're they they're twenty five versions of you. There's one. There's a couple taller. There's a couple shorter. There's a couple of darker skin, lighter skin, longer hair, shorter hair. And you're like, holy shit! I'm not. Oh, I'm not that guy. And you walk in and go, hi, I'm Dan. And they go, cool, we don't touch. Please sit down. And you go to shake the hands. And long before shaking hands was taboo, it was taboo. Yeah. And you know, and so you literally go from, you know, a 10-year contract with Channel 7 and Channel 10 to walking in at the very bottom of the rung in LA where they don't know your name. They won't touch you. They won't look at you. They won't have conversations with you. They literally just want you to read a page of NCIS Albuquerque or whichever freaking version they were doing that week. And see you later. And it took me, and to come back to actually your, your, your question, which I've gone off on a tangent, but yeah, I, I realized about three years in that all of my mates that were having success and all of my, all the auditions I was going for were kind of of a certain type. And yeah, that we'll was, that. they were Afghanistan veteran comes back to small town, joins up local law enforcement, uh, retired FBI agent, um, DEA agent, special agent, you know, Johnny Utah, um, you know, and I was like, oh, shit, okay, I'm 30-something, 35. And I was in that, and, and, and also when I was over there, I was in that little gap between 30 and 40 or, or 28 and 38 where there's not a lot, where it's like you're not the young male lead and you're not the old male lead. So I just sort of had to ride out those couple of years. There was a bit of a gray area there and it happens for guys and for girls. Um, but it was like, okay, of course I'm going in for all these physical kind of leading man action roles. Well, dude, you're 72 kilos because you're racing freaking Ironman and <laughs> you're running 100K a week. And you're, I mean, I got so skinny to race Roth in 2014. And I looked around at, Chris Hemsworth, Jai Courtney, Luke Bracey, Joel Edgerton, every Australian guy within five or 10 years of my age that was working over there. And I was like, they're all jacked. Yeah, they're jacked. I'm spending 35 hours a week training to get skinny and then walking into an audition for a DEA agent looking like I haven't had a meal in two weeks. Oh. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Kids like I know what it's like when you're really fit. You're so oh, fit. totally! You know when you're really fit because people start going, "Hey, man, are you sick?" <laughs> oh, I'm race fit. <laughs> I can climb up the mountains real fast. Oh, don't you worry. You know, I mean, I was I was doing these great double run days. You know, I was like, I was running 32 in the morning on a on a Sunday morning around Brentwood, 
and I was running another 10 or 12 at night on a Sunday night. I was the fittest I've been. I was running the best I'd ever run. I was the lightest. I was literally, you know, 70, 71 kilos. I'm now 85 um, yeah. a couple of years later. And, and so, yeah, I, I made a paradigm shift in my approach. And I was like, why the hell am I still racing triathlons when I should be training completely differently? So I, I put my bike in the shed. I, I raced one last race, which was the Santa Barbara Triathlon, which I love. And that was August 2014, and I went, triathlon's done. Everything, all that effort now has to go into my career. And within, that was August, uh, I got my first American job in November, and I started filming it in the following January. So it kind of, it was like like just three months. I was so close to doing it while half-assing it that as soon as I committed to it, it was like, it was almost instant. And it was like, dude, you should have done this years ago. Yeah. Well, maybe, you know, we talk about yeah. timing before. And, you know, that time that you spent in triathlon sports is almost like being able to relive what you thought you were going to do before you fell into acting. So maybe yeah. you need yeah. to see that out a bit more. I did. Yeah, I totally, I totally did. And even, even going back into triathlons uh, prior to that, when I was in my late 20s, was all about just going back and racing Ironman and I wanted to race Hawaii. And, and so I did, you know, and devoted a couple of years to that. And then once I'd finished Hawaii, then that was when I moved to LA and started focusing on LA. So, and look, the, the gift, the, there's a gift in everything. And the gift in that time was I made wonderful friends in America. Um, I've got a great, I've got a great uh, community of, of people who are um, all in the industry in some capacity, but are all, you know, have a, a lifestyle in around triathlon and multi-sport or cycling and whatnot and you know training what that did was actually just open up los angeles and california as a as a as a city and a state to live it was like suddenly i it was my happy place you know i love living there and and the fact that it was the center of my career the center of the universe for the entertainment industry and like training disneyland you know as well it was like so it it was great it was really cool I've got like two questions to ask kind of connected to that. The first thing is you're obviously a very competitive person, like competitive with yourself, competitive. You've got to be competitive to go into, you know, Ironman, triathlon, any type of sporting space, but also in the acting space as well. How do you weigh up your competitive drive with like collaboration? What I've learnt um, particularly probably over the last five or five or seven years, maybe even longer 2013 was was or 13 or 14 was when i did a a film in australia that was sort of the first time i really learned how to act and that was the first time i'd really collaborated with a director and with an ensemble cast and um i think where uh my mentality sits now is that collaboration is king and it must remain king um because Ego, ego will isolate and spirit will collaborate and, mm. and ego will kind of not get, get you where you want to go in terms of film and TV and performance. Um, if you step onto a, onto a set, and this is applicable in so many areas, but if you step onto a film set, going, I'm the lead in this show, um, what I say goes, I know what's right. No one else understands like I do. 
then you're just painting yourself into a corner and everybody else has to work around you um, because you've got a director's vision, you've got a producer's vision, you've got a DP's vision, you've got limitations between sound and production and location and the edit and, and you know, all of this stuff that so many performers are probably completely unaware of. Um, you need to go and do your job to the absolute best you can while knowing that you are a cog but an integral cog in a massive machine and and your job is to make sure that machine runs and if you're the cog that is running out of sync that is stopping the machine there's a lot of people watching and a lot of people writing the checks that'll go that cog doesn't work don't use him again and so i think you've got a responsibility um as a as a performer and as a and particularly as a lead performer um to not only do your job to the utmost of your ability, but to also remember that you are leading in a lead role. You're leading the way a set works. You're leading um, the cast. You're leading the creatives on that set to be part of the collaborative process. So um, I guess I've learned too that, that, that those who don't want to collaborate are often maybe paralyzed by fear and resistance and the resistance comes from a place of fear. Um, so a lack of collaboration is them resisting, wanting to open up, wanting to share, wanting to share ideas, wanting to maybe they're, they're so maybe they're doubting their own ability and they're scared of getting out of their comfort zone because they might be scared. They're going to get shown up for, for not being able to do it or whatnot. But I, I've, I've been there as well. And it's like, that's been responsible for some of the best performances I've ever done where you just get out of your own head, get out of your own way. And, you know, in the spontaneous moment, that's where the magic happens. So, so your collaboration is, is king for me and, and will remain so. Yeah. It's interesting because I, you know, ego does play a role. I think ego and the naivety that comes with ego sometimes means that you place yourself in an arena that you've never been in before. But I think to stay in that arena and to flourish, ego needs to take a sidestep to other things, such as, you know, collaboration and creativity. But have you got an example of when your ego trumped a situation and was of disservice to you and perhaps to other people? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can, I can give you, I can give you a couple, you know, but, but obviously early days in strike back when we were taking over for a, for a new cast or we were, sorry, we were taking over from an old cast. We were a new cast in the show. Um, and we were all finding our feet. We had a new director. Um, at that point, you know, I was, I was the lead in this episode. Um, little did I know that this director was under a lot of pressure from a junior producer. Uh, he was being told to wrap up the scene. We had to move to a different location. We hadn't shot the scene yet. And what was on the page was very different to what was being being blocked. Tensions were high. And the director said something that I didn't, uh, to the cast, which, which I thought was disrespectful. And in that moment, I stood up in the middle of an entire cast and crew and blew my top like f this f that f you fucking you know give us give us a second let us work and we had a stand up like a stand up face to face and i can probably count the times i've done that in my career on 
one finger. Um, and, <laughs> you know, and it's like, holy shit. Okay, that's that was your ego telling you that you're the lead in this show. You, you know, and this is early days of season one, episode three, you know, and we just kind of got out. We were just finding our feet. And, you know, your ego was telling you that you thought you knew a way of doing it better. You thought you had a better way. You, this imagination of this or imagining of this scene wasn't how you'd imagined it. And, and perhaps it was ego and it, it was definitely a lack of communication and it was definitely um, an overreaction and, you know, that direct, Oh, I, I apologize profusely. And that director um, and I uh, haven't really spoken since, which is unfortunate, but, but that was a time where I, I learned, I learned the lesson of, collaboration and keeping your shit together and and not reacting like that in the moment but also it's hard when you're you know when you're playing a soldier you everything like that is life and death you're running away you're you're using live weapons you know with blanks but you're firing rounds and there's explosions going off and everything's like right up here you know it's like fuck so it doesn't take much to um to flip you over the top well yeah where where do they call it like where um art imitates life or life imitates art you know you're being that character and it comes out when you have to stop playing the character exactly right and we all chose to kind of live live in that you know and i that's just the way i I work is i immerse myself in it you know on set and off as best i can and and bit of a method actor in you well that's that's it's kind of where look there's varying degrees of that and you've got to pick your time and pick your pick your projects when it comes to method acting because um, you know, it takes a toll on you. It takes a toll on those around you. It takes a toll on your your relationships. That's for sure. And 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 to be honest, some jobs might just not be worth it. it the mm. the set might not be it might not be the best way to work on a certain set. Um, it might not be the best way to get the best out of your fellow cast, the best out of your performance. It, it you know, the, the, it's like um, I, I'm not. I'm not stuck in any one way of working. Thankfully now, you know, 22 years in, I've got a, a tool set that I can pick and choose how to, how to work on a certain job and a certain character. And, 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 and that's, thankfully that's in there. That's, that's, I love it. Look, I love, I love going down the rabbit hole for a month or two and, and, and losing your mind and, and putting something completely unfamiliar on screen. Um, it's just when you have to come back home and your wife looks at you and goes, who the fuck are you? <laughs> you know, you know. Was Strike Pack one of those times that you did go down the rabbit hole? Uh, I, yeah, I did. I did on that first season and then I realised that what you can do on a film over the course of eight or ten weeks is very hard to sustain over, over the course of a shoot of seven months. So I, I had to dial it back because I was just exhausted and, and because also sometimes it just wasn't worth it in, in the fact that I didn't need to, you know, speak to the cleaning lady in my apartment in a gruff American accent while cleaning my pistol um, to get a better performance that day, you know, like by the time you've done, you know, four months of it, it's in you, you know, and, and, so you know how to go of, in and out of it because that's being a professional. Yeah, yeah, and and those around me will say, no, you were in there for three years, and I was in there to, to varying degrees. And you wait, and you get certain episodes, and this episode is 
uh, a very important emotionally taxing episode. All right, well, I'll dig in a bit deeper for this month. And then next ep- next episode, while well, I'm in the background doing not much, well, I'll come up for air, you know, and, and it's, that's even that's a, a sort of a lesson and a craft that I've learned over the years of, you know, you don't have to be Daniel Day Lewis the entire the entire time to um to to survive because the, the longer the show is, the longer the shoot is, the more survival it is. You mean you know, and when you're doing three years of it, you just you'll just burn yourself into the ground. So you got to pick and choose a little bit and be a little bit selective of of, of how and where you apply your efforts and um. And, but yeah, method acting has, has brought me some of the best results um, of, of my career in the last 10 years, that's for sure. Yes, yeah, strike back is interesting for me. Obviously, you know, with Mark, my, my husband, um, being with the Australian military for 16 yeah. years and um, six with the SAS. Wow. What, and obviously he's, he's a big fan of yours and he wanted me to also let you know that he approves of your weapons handling. Oh, fantastic. And- Thank you. <laughs> He did give the caveat that he's been out um, of the service for a little while, but, you know, from his recollection, Good. Plus. All right. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. You can move forward with I've that. I've got a smile on my face right now. Thank you. <laughs> well, he's critical with that stuff. Like when he oh, totally. watches a military film and kind of sees really slack handling of weapons, he's just like, haven't done the basic research, oh, you know. same. I mean, we were the same. I mean, I think Strike Back prided itself on having the most – military uh, firearms authenticity of any of the sort of shows on air and and you know i'd even get guys more recently off like seal team on cbs and some of the other ones um going hey dude i just saw this episode there's no way we could do that holy shit you know and 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 we just knew for me particularly playing you know an american Mm. um special forces soldier i i couldn't get that wrong you know I, i had not only did i have to owe it to the to the character and to the show but i owed it to the so massive massive military um and veteran community that were massive fans of that show and i was living in their country and portraying you know one of their brothers it was like i I got it i just got to do it i got to do it the best i can so that was um something i really prided myself on and worked very hard on yeah the veteran community in the u.s is it's well, it's tight um, and there's a lot of respect and support for military personnel throughout the US. I would, I would say yeah. a lot more than probably in Australia. What yeah. was some of the feedback that you received whilst you were doing Strike Back? Uh, I, got, I got just uh, the overwhelming sort of response was um, people putting their hands up to help actually and that came from Australia and America and the UK um, so I guess there was a real accessibility or a real um, ownership or, or a sense of relatability um, from, from active servicemen and women to veterans to go, hey, man, on Instagram or whatever, hey, love the show, see what you're doing. You guys are working so hard. If you're ever coming through Albuquerque and want to hit the range, let me know. Um, you know, uh, that's, how I, that's how I got to know Bram, obviously, we'll be chatting yeah, and 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 we you are know, watching Mark on, on on his Instagram and stuff like that. Um, overwhelmingly, it was thank you for putting in the effort to look authentic, and you can see the hard work that you guys have done. Um, and it's refreshing to see on TV to to try and respect the work that we've done with the work that you've done. And that was that was really nice. Yeah, you know, I, I think the way that you did play the part and the investment that you put into it. I think allowed them to feel respected and heard. And yeah. you know, I think 
something that I've, I've learned through my time being with Mark, and I think it's actually nearly three years now, someone goes, oh, yes, you met on Survivor three years ago. I'm like, well, what's happened in that time? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they want to share their story, but yeah. people don't ask. Uh, and I think, like, Mark feels drawn to you because of what you did. And, mm. you know, he's always looking at your Instagram and looking at how you choose to show up in the space. And it's mm. almost he knows that you haven't been in the military, but you yeah. – you have taken the time to understand that world a little bit more, which is something that it's like they leave the service and it's like no one wants to talk to them about that because they're yeah. nervous too or they think there's a sensitivity around it. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a big learning experience for me, you know, over there, um, obviously because – and and even – it was even a challenge in Australia because I I didn't know many people either, either active or past in the Australian military, whereas – there's such a huge community in the US. So first of all, I, I took that role with an utmost amount of responsibility because the alternative is you show up as a pretty boy Australian actor taking the piss playing an American soldier. Mm. I mean, that's that's just not in my DNA. That's just not in my psyche. You know, that's there's there's a million actors out there that will do that. That's just not me or not just not never even crossed my mind. You know, and that's like. The way if I'm going to play this character, and if I'm going to put on that uniform, pick up that weapon, use that that you know, tell stories about being in you know yeah. Afghanistan or Libya or or Iraq. Uh, uh, yeah, Iraq. I went straight back to America there. Um, then yeah. then you're doing that with a with an incredible the utmost responsibility because the people watching the show were there and. I just couldn't. I just couldn't do that, you know, without doing it 100% authentically. But then understanding the difference between how we view our military community in this country, and I think maybe, I hope maybe it's changing. But you know, at that time, going back three or four or five years when I started Strike Back, I was training in 2016, 17. Uh, I don't think many Australians realised that that there's a lot of Australian Defence Force Force personnel that have been, you know, deployed in active combat for. You know, ten years. I mean, we're oh, a, at war for a long time. Yeah, that time, like in the time when Mark was with the SAS, it was mm-hmm. like intense and relentless. And I, I wonder, what was it like for you in your filming in the desert in Jordan? You're between Syria and Iraq. There's a real life war playing out. You're in a military, you know, series. Yeah. Are you attuned to that fact? Yeah, that was. Um, that was. That was a great learning experience for us. So before we started filming, we'd done we'd done all the uh, we'd done all the military training in America. We worked with um, Navy SEALs and and Marine veterans and a real cross section of of, of um, personnel and skill sets. Then we got flown to Jordan and we trained at the King Abdullah Special Operations Training Center for three weeks. Um, which is a $250 million yeah, training center, which has got kill houses and a plane and all sorts of ranges, like artillery ranges and, and yeah, everything. It's it's huge. And we were training, and on the next range were um, the Jordanian um, special police, and then there was a bunch of Americans stationed there. Um, there were Russians training there. And you've got six actors and six stuntmen training on the next range. And, you know, we, they've got Starbucks in there. So we started chatting to some of the Americans there, 
who were about to be further deployed into Iraq. And I was like, well, shit, we're, we're, we're in it. We're in the middle of it, you know. And, yeah. and we were at the time, um, we were driving to location up from the Dead Sea back up to Oman. You look at the, the street signs and it's like you turn right to Iraq, you turn straight ahead, you go straight ahead to Syria, you turn left um, over to, to the Dead Sea and into Israel. Below us was bordered to Egypt. You're like every single place was a center of conflict, and and around that time was when this one of the horrible Syrian chemical weapons attacks happened. And on our first or second day of filming, we were out in the desert, and you watched two sorties of American warplanes fly north from the Gulf into Syria. Yeah, wow. And you're like, fuck. I mean, we're we're right. We're in the middle of it and we're the absurdity of us in there playing make-believe was like, wow, you know, and um, I yeah, I don't know how to explain it otherwise, other than the, the real, actually the real part that hit home is we were filming on our second last day out there and we were filming about an hour and a half um, outside of Amman um, uh, on a military base. And there were, there were, there were, um, blowing up mortars uh, a kilometre or two away. So you'd have real mortar fire um, explosions. But the other side of that base was a, um, a refugee camp. And they, they were saying it was, you know, 100 or 200,000 people displaced living on this refugee camp from the border. And it's like suddenly what we're doing is so insignificant. It, you know, it's just, I just, it was, it was real. It was real stuff. And, and you just, you know, I, I was left a bit speechless by the, by the whole thing, really. It was like, I don't know what I took away from that in terms of importance of what I was doing, performing or anything like that. It was just, it was just really close. Suddenly all of that, that you, that we see in the Western world on the news was, was really close. And there was a level of what the hell are we doing out here doing a car chase? You know, it's like far out. Well, and I tell you what, that makes me think about. Um, I was watching Michael Jordan's uh, "The Last Dance." Isn't last it incredible? Night. Oh, I love it. Uh. And the reason I'm I'm thinking about it is because he makes this really distinguished line between being a basketball player and people's desire for him to also be an activist. And and in this context, it was mm-hmm. a political activist. But what I'm thinking mm-hmm. for you is. You know, I sometimes think when you reach this um, degree of success in a certain thing, you know, and and you being competitive and always looking to the next step, Mm. have you had the shift where you want to start to contribute outside of that world, Um, maybe more on a social level? And I I know you're big into, you know, philanthropy, but Mm. is it something that you're starting to think about more deeply and particularly with, you know, the experiences that you might have had in Jordan? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and and I'm certainly getting closer to that. And I think what's probably my, where I've resisted doing that is is the excuse that I've made of going, well, my life is so transient. And, and so I was really looking at um, lending a voice to um, some kind of like, Australian veteran-owned businesses or 
or support networks for Australian veterans at one point, you know, and like Mates for Mates or Soldier On or, or even Red Six, which which is, you know, going well up in Queensland. And But then all of a sudden I'm back overseas somewhere else and I'm not a soldier. I'm I'm playing a spaceship captain, you know, and and that's my own stuff where I've got to work out how to do that and where to do it and how best to do that. Um, I've always I've always tried to give use my social platforms to give a voice to those who would not otherwise have one or have one at the level that that I'm able to help at. Um, but and I certainly feel a responsibility to to do that. Um, but uh, yeah, that that's probably where I. It's probably where an area where I could improve, or I could, um, or I could be better. And I and I think if I if I if I was to make an excuse for why I haven't done it more so, it would just be it would be that I make the excuse to myself that I move around so much that, you know, what's yeah. I mean, I I'm very good at dealing with what's immediately in front of me, um, and and to a fault, you know. And so suddenly when when I'm you know back in the states or I'm in in Croatia or something, then, then, you know, things fall off my radar and, and uh, that's just, that's maybe something I need to address. I mean, it's a, a totally a personal choice and it certainly wasn't uh, a judgment at all. No, One thing no. I will say is you've, when we did the relief run um, earlier this year, you were straight on to kind of like seeing how you could mobilise your community. And I think if anything we learn from like COVID-19 is, you know, what transient means is we can't always be face-to-face with people. Yeah. But clearly this time has shown that you don't have to be face-to-face in order to have connection and create contribution. We just Correct. have to be creative. And yeah. I, I did appreciate my use of alliteration with those three. Oh, oh, very, very nice. Well, the, and the relief the relief one was a wonderful, um, just, you know, great moment of timing where, where I thought, oh, I might go and do something in a, in a running space at that point, I was, I was trying to get fit to go to this new job. And so I think I just, I hadn't run for a while and, um, and I was like, I'll run 20, 20 minutes a day, every day for 20 days, just to start getting fit. And then once I get fit, I'll, I'll, um, I'll start doing something. And then, you know, the bushfires happened. I thought, oh, maybe I'll run 50 for the fires. What if I just train, I'll run 50 K for the fires and I raise money, raise money. And then you guys popped up you know, a day later with the relief run, I was like, well, I don't have to run 50. I can just run 21. <laughs> so, so I went from not running at all and running 20 minutes a day to running, you know, 21K three weeks later um, and, and raising a stack of money and, and, and helping you guys do what you did so incredibly well. And, and just, you know, it, it all aligned perfectly with, with effort and timing and, and, um, and yeah, I guess the, the platform that I have and the, the you know, I, I have, a lot of sporty people and, and triathlon people and running people in, in, in sort of my, my follower group and people I follow and, and um, it just, it just worked out really well. Yeah. And I think it, I think sometimes people feel that it's going to take an immense amount of time if they are going to, you know, do a social initiative or some kind of form of charitable contribution. I've always just thought if we just use our time and talents and we all have different talents. I mean, yes, we all have the same amount of time, but if you align with people who have diverse talents, that's, as you used before, that's where the magic can happen. 
Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of the sporting world, and obviously, you know, you've now got you've got a lot of hats. You've got the fatherhood hat, the family hat, the actor hat, and you know, it sounds like you're moving into a bit of production side of things as well, and more creation yeah. of behind the scenes. But you've also got this sporting side of you, like, you know, we don't know what's going to happen for the rest of 2020 and obviously there's going to be a ripple effect of what happens in 2021 and even beyond but Mm. you know where would you like to see you know your time and talents be used over you know the next kind of two years oh it's an interesting one um it's funny i've i view my 40s as i've got this sort of feeling that all the hard work and grind of your 30s is going to pay off in your 40s um and particularly looking around now and just talking about that production thing, you know, I've been working on just wanting to tell my own stories or be involved in telling different stories. And, and when you suddenly look around and all these relationships that you've fostered for, for 20 years and all of you are sudden the, the friends that you've come up with and worked alongside are now at the pinnacles of, of their careers as well, um, suddenly to go, well, I want to produce a TV series or a film or whatnot, you, you can go straight in at, a top level because they're your buddies that you've been working with for 20 years. I think it gets easier in terms of wanting to do things and do good and, and make things happen as you get a bit older. And so I kind of haven't really given thought beyond this time of, 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 of getting through, you know, the, the first six or 12 months of, of parenthood. Um, and sort of actually re just just reestablishing what my real life is going to look like because I have been moving around so much because we have been, because we have left America and, and we're looking at being back in Australia for a while. If your base, if your base isn't solid, then I don't think you can build on that and certainly not enough to then start helping other people first because I think your base will crumble. So I think what initially the next two years is going to look like for me is actually establishing my own solid life platform for Zoe and Austin and myself and work out where we want to live, what work is going to look like now that we're, we're a family. Um, and then once that gets the attention that it needs, and it does need it because we've you know, had focus elsewhere trying to develop you know, two careers across multiple continents um, and now parenthood, um, I think once, once that's anchored down, then you can grow from there. Um, so actually, actually there's a little bit of self-inward kind of um, planting that needs to happen first and then once that's happened then uh then you've got the, the you know the, the roots are set for the next decade to go and to to spread your energy outwards and elsewhere i love that and i'm sure zoe really loves that too <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and you know it makes me think like i i finished the calendar club last month um which is you know running a mile equivalent to the the date of the month so oh yeah you know, wow 
Yeah. It was a it was a, a massive month, but probably got me out of the house, which was also great after <laughs> much. Just sometimes you need a little bit of space when you're forced into quarantine. Oh, yeah. um, but it was huge. It was 750k's in the month, and we were doing it to support a couple of guys in the US who said that they would donate 10,000 meals to frontline responders in the US. Now, long story short, I finished that month, and uh, a, a bunch of women reached out to me and said will you redo this again in May um, and kind of support a group of women who also want to do it? And it was like the second last day of it and I had like 29 miles and I had 30 miles and I already declared May is the month of Mark. But I also (laughs) was like, I need a freaking break. And I, this girl told me this and, you know, there's always this inclination of can I help and can I do more? And I just said, I can't help other people unless I help myself and I can't help myself, I can't help other people before I choose to help my family. Correct. Yep. And, yep, yep, and yep. It, that's, a, that's been a big learning curve in my life and I feel like that's almost where you are right now. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's exactly where it is. Although the calendar club is right up my alley. Like, <laughs> oh, my. like it's, it's, come on, like three, three months in lockdown, like when's the first? <laughs> How long have I got to wait? Come on. <laughs> I'm already already ticking over like, hang on a second, where am I going to be in June? Okay, I can do that. Could I write? Yes, I could. Choose a February date, 28 days. Choose 28 days. Oh, man. Well, maybe I I have to do it in case. We'll see how we go. Well, and people have the choice. I always said it was like it was choose your own adventure. You could do it in kilometres. You could do it in miles. You could do it in teams. Some people did it on the bike. Some people did it, used it as how many minutes they would plank. Oh, um, wow. Imagine planking 30 minutes, mate. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to judge everyone because I'm a little nuts like that, but uh, that's, yeah, that that's, wouldn't be my preferred way of doing it. <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny how we think that's nuts and then people will be like, yeah, bet you do what you do. I remember once one of my girlfriends is a swimmer and she was doing a triple crossing of the English Channel and I go, you are freaking crazy. And she goes, you just ran across India. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, isn't it funny how we can oh, yeah. uh, use that word crazy when it's just beyond what we know? Oh, but- I jumped in the water, actually. My buddy swam the English Channel uh, 20 years ago now, and uh, and I jumped in and did a fair bit with him. And I actually used flippers, I used fins. Like he was, he was a, Steve was a great swimmer. I was a pretty good swimmer, but he was great. And uh, and just to be in there, in the swirl of the English Channel, it's horrible, it's dark, it's murky. There's shipping, there's ferries and ships left, right and centre. It's it's horrible. It's it's a challenge, and bravo to anybody that does that. Let alone does it three times. Whoa. Do you reckon I can one day tempt you to do a physical challenge with me? Uh yeah, yeah, I do actually. Yeah. That's, that's, probably I, why I I, like- that's probably why I keep my distance from you because I know <laughs> <laughs> I know that one day you'll get the hooks in, and I'm like, hey, so I'm really sorry. I'm running across Africa. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. I feel like. Zoe and I need to develop a friendship first and then she can go, okay, all right. <laughs> and then her and Mark can be on a WhatsApp group kind yeah, of bitching yeah. out together. You've, you've, got me, you've got me thinking about the calendar club now. It's like, oh, that'd be great. Do you know what was cool? And you did incrementally adapt to the distance, but I'd say like by the end of it, it I actually loved this element where it was about creating rituals to to obviously do the thing but also recharge afterwards. And it was all consuming. By like the final 10 days, it got more and more consuming. Oh, I but I, it was a nice reminder of what it was like to, to get back to the long run. Yeah. And after having Harry, like I haven't done a lot of long runs because you'll feel like you've always you've got to do everything quickly. Like I'm going to go for an exercise. I'll do it quickly yep. to be back home. Yeah. Yep. Um, 
but it's healthy. Like at some point you do like need to re-tap back to like the foundations of what was you pre having a child and that's yeah. a healthy process to have as well. And and I've always found that running is is just the purest kind of most <sighs> zen exercise. If that's where your if that's what your base is, then then that's it. You know, you can I can ride a bike, you know, I've ridden sitting in Melbourne and, and things like that and ridden a lot of bike riding and, and and big rides and that's great. And the way you the way you adapt day after day after day, you know, you're stronger day seven, day eight, day ten than you are day two, you know. And it's it's incredible. But I don't think there's anything quite like the discipline and the self exposure, the self uh, yeah, discovery. You know? <laughs> you can't hide. It's you can't raw. Hide, like, man. You know, like... on the bike that gets your movement. I will say no. to you, you have to watch um, Amazon Prime are releasing a 10-part series called The World's Toughest Race, and I'm sure yeah. you would have watched it as a kid. You know, it was um, Eco Challenge. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark and I did it last year. Oh, shit. Um, Air Grills is the host of it, um, and they sent us out to Fiji. You're in teams of four. And I think you had like 10 or 12 days to do this very challenging course. Oh, who else is in your team? We had a guy called, so there are two other adventure racers, um, mm-hmm. a guy called Jared Mitchell who's a mm-hmm. firefighter and mm-hmm. a paramedic friend of mine called Morgan. And uh-huh. I've raced with both of them in different parts of the world adventure racing. Mm-hmm. And it was, I mean, I can't say much, signed an NDA, but I can say that it was like so full on. The only thing I will say is, I think they expected more people to break than they did. And Uh I think the evolution of the mindset of an endurance athlete from 2002 when they last did it to now has evolved. I think it is more a common day practice for people to put themselves out of their comfort zone. Yeah, particularly if they're going to bring people to that that, um, format who are are seasoned racers, you know. Yeah. I don't know how many, how many, I mean, you think about how the how the interconnectedness of the endurance community is now compared to 2002. You know that you can you pick up your phone and you can see people doing what you're doing or what you want to do in your palm of your hand. Yeah. Whereas you know, going back to 2002, you're trying to watch a little bit of the Hawaiian Ironman on Wide World of Sports at 1:30 in the afternoon and record it to your VHS just to go. Oh, there's other people that are like mad like me that want to go race through the lava fields. You know, oh. and, and I think I think that exposure to seeing other people do it and go, well, suddenly it's possible. Suddenly it's, you know, you ran the calendar club last month. Cool. Well, I'll just do it next month. It's no big deal. All of a sudden it's, there's an element exactly. of normality I'm, to it, you know? Yeah. I mean, when you watch this, you're going to love it because it was uh, a wild adventure like mountain biking, kayaking, stand-up paddleboard, climbing, you know, a lot of using native, um, you know, shipping, I mean, like, boating vehicles and all that kind of wow. stuff it was I mean all obviously man-powered but I, there was times when Mark was like it feels like a sick selection process where they're just yeah. trying to throw you know curveball after curveball and it's how you cope with the unpredictable but we could talk it for ages and we, oh, we could, definitely we have could. A- all right Good. we need we need to pick a we need to pick a race we need to pick a little adventure we need to we need to come up with something I think I think the takeaway from our chat today is that you and I are going to go away <laughs> and do something crazy over the yeah. course of a couple of days or weeks, and yeah. we're going to pick uh, some sort of charitable recipient and yeah. uh, and do something good for the good of others through our sacrificial pain. 
Yes, I love it. I think we've been destined to do this for quite some time. But Fantastic. hey, Dan, I it's been actually a real pleasure to be able to speak to you and to to learn more about like the part of you that maybe some people don't know and obviously some people will know parts of this but you are an intelligent human being that's highly creative creative I love that you found this um, appreciation of collaboration and I think fatherhood is really going to be only propelling you to enrich and the other parts of your life so thank you for your time oh thank you for having me I really really appreciate it loved having a chat and uh, now you've inspired me to go for a run. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and do it. But thank you so much and give Thanks, your mum my best. <laughs> wow. I mean, I love how real Dan is. Uh, real to share, real to be aware of who he is, where he's come from, where he's grown. Um, I just loved that conversation and I really hope that you take have taken something away from it as well. I think the journey into parenthood is something that is not only all-consuming but it can change you fundamentally as a person and Dan so rightly said that you don't know what it's going to be like until you're there and any goals that you create beforehand well you look at them with a different lens once you enter into to that arena. Uh, I can't wait to see what Dan has been creating whilst he's been COVID-19. I also am super intrigued about uh, what he's been filming in Ireland and I, I hope that kicks back off the ground as soon as borders open up again. And, hey, you can follow Dan through all social media channels. I know he's very active and open on Twitter. He's also on Instagram. All that stuff will be in the show notes. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing the feedback and I also look forward to releasing the next podcast. I plan to do uh, a few more frequently. I I have to admit Calendar Club definitely impacted my ability to um, do podcast interviews, but I've kind of gotten a lot done the last couple of days. So I'll roll them out whilst I have them. There's no point of them staying in my desktop. And, uh, yeah, I hope you guys happy, well, safe, wherever you are. Lots of love from me and uh, good night because it's good night where I am. So I'm going to reflect the time zone that I'm in. But obviously you could be listening to this in the morning, you know, the afternoon, on your ride home, whatever it may be. So I think that is my time to say goodbye and see you later.